All right. Good afternoon. Welcome, everybody, to the Cato Institute. I'm David Bowes. I'm the executive vice president of the Institute. And uh, we're trying something a little different here, doing an event after work hours. We'll see how that works out. Uh, but hopefully, it's good for people who have jobs and uh, <laughs> can't come to the events that we do uh, usually at noon. So we're glad to have you all here. We're glad to have a very interesting discussion of Ron Paul's revolution. About 30 years ago, there was a book published about the early years of the libertarian movement called It Usually Begins with Ayn Rand. And that's what we found here at Cato, that most of our interns, most of the students who came to our summer seminars um, had first read Ayn Rand. They read Atlas Shrugged or The Fountainhead. That's how they got into this. Not all of them, by any means, uh, but probably more than anything else. And I think you can say, over the past six years, it usually begins with Ron Paul. That's where you get more people getting their first taste of libertarian ideas, and maybe then they move on to read Ayn Rand, they, uh, to read Hayek, uh, to read Cato policy studies, whatever. Uh, but a lot of people being um, brought to the concept of liberty and limited government by Ron Paul and his campaign. And to me, it's clear that he got more attention and more success and more votes in this cycle, 2011-12, than he did in 2007-8. And I had a lot of reporters ask me over the past few months, why is that? And I think, to me, the clear answer is not because he did anything very different. He hasn't changed his views. He hasn't changed even much of the way he presents them. What did change, I think, was the public policy environment in which he was talking. Back in 2007, Ron Paul warned that an economy based on debt and cheap money from the Federal Reserve was not sustainable, but the economy was booming and nobody wanted to listen. And then, after the financial crisis, when he came back around 2011 to campaign again, they were listening. In 2007-8, he talked about the importance of sound money, and I knew even libertarians who said, what's the problem with the Federal Reserve? Haven't they been maintaining the great moderation? By 2011, everybody was willing to listen to criticisms of the Federal Reserve Board. Um, in 2007, he talked about overspending, how the Republican Party had spent more than any president in history. Republicans didn't want to hear that. By 2011, perhaps because there was a Democratic president, Republicans were a lot more ready to hear that. And I think in 2007, Ron Paul talked about endless military intervention. And at that time, Republicans were determined to stand in lockstep, say the surge is working, and refuse to listen to any criticism. By 2011, even Republicans were getting tired of endless wars. And so I think all of that is what changed the context in which the second Ron Paul campaign took place and caused him to get more attention and, and voters than he did before. And many of you know there are headlines today saying Ron Paul ends campaign or Ron Paul suspends campaign. It's pretty clear to me, if you actually read beyond the headline, the campaign is not over. What he said is he's not going to go run expensive television ads in the lingering primaries that nobody's paying much attention to. He's going to continue doing the kinds of things he's been doing, talking about the issues, uh, giving speeches to thousands of college students, um, and his 
volunteers working hard in caucuses and the other places that delegates are actually selected. So that's an interesting unfolding story that's still going on. How many delegates can Ron Paul get? But that doesn't really matter to us today because this book is not about Ron Paul's campaign. This book is about Ron Paul's revolution, which is a broader topic than a specific presidential campaign. Brian Doherty is becoming the, history, the historian of the libertarian movement. He's written books on the Burning Man Festival uh, and on the Supreme Court battle over the Second Amendment, both of whom have some libertarian uh, content. He more particularly wrote uh, the book Radicals for Capitalism, A Freewheeling History of the Modern American Libertarian Movement which I declared at the Encyclopedia Britannica blog is going to be the standard history of the libertarian movement for a long time. It's a massive work of research that will be the standard source for people studying this movement. Brian Doherty is a senior editor of Reason. He's been there for more than a decade. Before that, he was a journalism fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. But most importantly, he started his career as an intern at the Cato Institute. In fact, I think we had five interns that semester, and one was Brian, and one was the distinguished scholar Brian Kaplan, who's here in the front row. So that was a pretty good record uh, for that year's intern class. Brian Doherty then returned as perhaps the youngest ever managing editor of Regulation Magazine before moving on to other editorial projects. He's been covering Ron Paul since 1999, which is obvious in this insightful and well-researched book. So please welcome the author of Ron Paul's Revolution, Brian Doherty. Thank you all very much. Is uh, the mic setting good, projecting well? Um, I'm going to talk, I think, for about 20 minutes uh, to all up front, and then there'll be some questions uh, later. I'm, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to start with what I think is, was a very interesting frame for my history with the topic of my book. Uh, unfortunately, the, the end point of it extended beyond the book itself, so it's not reflected in the book. Um, uh, and as of this point, it's the first time I met Ron Paul, and to this date, the last time I saw Ron Paul. Uh, both of them were events at large state universities. The first was at the University of Florida when I was a college student in January 1988. He was running for president then, too, uh, with the Libertarian Party. Uh, I was a member of uh, the University of Florida College Libertarians, and we had arranged a speaking engagement for Ron Paul at our campus. And we drew, uh, I think, around 100 people, which excited the hell out of us. We, that was an amazing success. It was you know, 10 times as many people as had come to any UF College Libertarian event. But they, they were all there. Uh, to examine a curiosity. Uh, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't even 100 libertarians. It was people, oh, third party presidential candidate. Let's check this out. Our, our greatest triumph was getting you know, a 600 word article in the uh, school newspaper the next day. And afterwards, uh, we, we took Dr. Paul, I believe, to an IHOP. There's a picture of that somewhere. We thought it was the height of, of sort of radical, scruffy political activism. It was great. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, the last time so far that I've seen Dr. Paul was also at a large state university, uh, UCLA, out in Los Angeles, where I now live. Um, 7,000 people showed up to see Ron Paul running for president again, uh, this time with uh, one of the major parties. And they, they were not 
curious curiosity seekers. They were not even really there to learn. They knew what this guy had to say right and left. They were, you know, the instant the words initials NDAA came out of his mouth, they were booing. The word Ben Bernanke, they were booing. Uh, you know, and, and afterward, rather than merely retreating to an IHOP or, or getting an article in the school paper, I was watching groups of them gather to talk about their congressional runs or their runs for the LA County GOP Central Committee or some big well-attended event at their college campus they were about to throw or what they were gonna write on their website that had 5,000 people reading it every day. Uh, this, the, the, the arc of the story from that first major college campus appearance to this latest one uh, was actually truly dreamlike in, in a really weird way if you've been watching the story as long as I have. And it, it made me think a little bit about what's the best way to frame how Ron Paul did this. And, and one of the things you hear a lot about Ron Paul is about his rock solid consistency, which is, is, is very true. But uh, I realize that in a certain extent, I think the Ron Paul phenomenon works as well as it does because of four different uh, almost paradoxical divisions that Ron Paul bridges, uh, not to get all English majory, and I'm gonna talk about four of them uh, quickly here tonight. Uh, one of them is he's a phenomenon of real and impressive real-world political success, yet one whose greatest achievements are, are, to a large extent, irrelevant to that political success. And I think, especially in the wake of the so-called dropout or pullback announcement, it's, it's worthwhile reminding uh, people of some of the objective measures of that political success, especially from 2008 uh, to 2012. I mean, uh, first of all, of course, his success as a congressman, a guy uh, believing things that almost none of his other colleagues believe, which leads to that sort of dismissive comment you hear about his congressional career. Oh, how many bills has he passed? Well, if you're a guy who believes in the Constitution in the U.S. Congress from 1970 to 2012, you know, you're understandably not going to get a lot of bills passed, but it doesn't mean that you're not a great congressman. And as a president, uh, from the 2008 run to the 2012 run, uh, he managed to uh, pretty much double his raw vote total, and he managed to more than double his percentage of the GOP primary vote from around 4% to around 10% so far. And I think in the end, that figure will be even higher uh, with the other candidates out. And, and I think even though he might not be running actively in Texas or California, I expect that his people will come out to vote for him in great numbers. Uh, anyway, um, he has managed, you know, he raised 35 million last time around and by standard political terms didn't do anything with it. Why? He, he didn't succeed. You'd, uh, you'd think he might have burned out his fans. He did not burn out his fans. They gave that much and more this time, and, uh, which is interesting, but I think the comparative uh, giving is even more interesting. Uh, he gathered nearly twice as much as both Gingrich and Centorum combined. Uh, Paul drew around 36 million so far this go-round, Gingrich around 16 million, Santorum around 14. Uh, this guy has a base who is willing to give, and that's something very important in politics, and it's something uh, that the GOP is seeing uh, is, is having real, real effects. They are able and willing to do the nitty-gritty of politics. They are able and willing to, to run for central committee. They are able and willing to achieve positions of total power is not the right word, but positions of high authority in state parties from Alaska to Iowa. They're able to win delegations in caucus states, just like Ron Paul said he would and uh, everyone else said he wouldn't. Uh, they can do that retail politics stuff. This is a story of real world political success. 
Um, and the, the analogies that the GOP powers uh, should keep in mind are both uh, the, the Goldwater kids of 1960, a similar uh, youth-based movement that gathered around a, uh, a, a heroic, strongly anti-government figure who had written a best-selling book and uh, managed to surprise uh, the regnant establishment of the time with what they could achieve in the future. Uh, the more recent analogy, I think, is a religious right, uh, a, a wing of the party like the libertarian wing that Paul represents that, uh, that may be outmanned in a majority rules way, but that are so passionate about their ideas that they're going to be able to swing their weight in the GOP beyond their apparent number. So it is a story of real political success, but its true importance is not about that kind of political success. It's not about vote getting. It's not about winning control of GOP precincts or the like. It is a continuation of the intellectual mission of the libertarian movement out of which Ron Paul arose. He, he was educated to become the political thinker he is by the works of the likes of von Mises and Hayek and Rothbard and the publications of the Foundation for Economic Education. And he is always embraced uh, Leonard Reed of the Foundation for Economic Education's vision of what intellectual and political change was about, which was about educating one mind at a time. And Ron Paul has used politics as the tool uh, for that libertarian goal. And it's a tool that if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have said maybe wasn't the best tool because he was merely uh, the sort of obscure outlier in Congress, but he has proven me 100% wrong. By using the tool of major party electoral politics, he has been one of the greatest educators for libertarianism uh, of our time, as, as David said, and, and uh, it's not just about politics. Uh, the other uh, sort of gap that Ron Paul bridges that I think is key to his appeal is the apocalyptic Ron Paul uh, who is also at the same time the very hopeful Ron Paul. Um, Ron Paul is one of the only uh, politicians around who is willing to say, you know, America is not necessarily the greatest, richest, freest, most wonderful nation in the world uh, that can only do right overseas, and if there's anything wrong, just vote out that other guy and vote me in and everything will be fine. Ron Paul is willing to say in foreign policy terms that our behavior overseas uh, is actually in, in some ways the behavior of a criminal empire and that we actually might want to consider that we're earning enemies overseas by our behavior. He is willing to say, hey, the, the constant series of decades of billion, now trillion dollar deficit spending is impoverishing us. It's not something we actually can continue. We can't just, we can't just behave as we have behaved. He is willing to point out that we are facing serious, serious problems uh, with our debt and fiscal crises that are not going to go away uh, by saying, as Mitt Romney recently said, oh, we can't have a trillion dollar spending cut in one year like Ron Paul wants, why that would shrink the economy. Uh, we can't keep thinking that way. We can't keep pretending that it's okay that armed government agents will knock down our doors over raw milk or medical marijuana. He, 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 is, he is a true prophet in that sense. He's willing to, 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 to decry what America has become. And that, that doesn't usually work very well in politics. Um, and I think it does scare a lot of people about Ron Paul. But at the same time, as he explained to me when I asked him, you know, how do, how do, you, how do you succeed with, with this message that, that seems so full of doom and gloom? He pointed out to me, look, especially the young people I talk to, uh, they see the hope in it. Because I'm not just saying 
everything's doomed and, and we don't know what to do about it. We do know what to do about it. We do know that we actually can try to return our government to its uh, constitutional limits. We actually can spend less than we're spending. We actually can bring the troops home. Uh, you know, we send them over, we bring them back. He, he paints an intellectually consistent vision of hope and a way out of the apocalypse, uh, which, which allows him to, to win a hopeful enthusiasm, uh, even as he rightfully paints a very dark picture of where overreaching government has led us. Uh, the other interesting uh, bridge that Ron Paul divides is he is the major political figure who is at the both time, uh, at the same time, righter than right and more progressive than the progressives. He's the guy who actually says when uh, most Republicans line up behind a, a Paul Ryan plan that will still be increasing our debt for decades, Ron Paul comes up with a plan that says we could actually achieve a balanced budget and stop growing the debt in five years and we don't have to raise taxes to do it. Um, he is a guy who is actually saying, hey, uh, we talk about big government. We talk about government interfering in our lives. Let's stop interfering in the lives of people who want to buy and sell raw milk or smoke medical marijuana. We can do this. We actually can have a government that is the government that conservatives say they want, and yet when confronted with Ron Paul, seem a little bit afraid of it. Uh, it, was, it was clear to me that Ron Paul ought to have been you know, the Tea Party candidate by acclamation in the 2012 race, and that it didn't turn out that way, I think is, is not so much a fault of Ron Paul as, as, as a failure of will uh, to be as conservative as they say they are on the part of the American right. I think Ron Paul is clearly the most conservative, consistently conservative candidate out there. Uh, at the same time, he is also, in many ways, a more progressive uh, politician than President Obama, who is unfortunately the favorite politician of the progressive left, such as it is. Um, I mean, you have President Obama, who has expanded the president's powers to unilaterally imprison and even kill American citizens beyond even George Bush's attempts. And Ron Paul is a guy who can get 7,000 college students to boo a mere mention of the words National Defense Authorization Act, a bill signed by President Obama. You have a President Obama who has started new unauthorized wars, greatly expanded a civilian killing drone program, and presided over you know, continuing gigantic defense budgets uh, bigger than any in world history. And Ron Paul campaigns, on the other hand, for peace and withdrawal of the US military from the world. You've got Obama who wants to continue to expand every aspect of the war on drugs, including the war on state legal medical marijuana. You have Ron Paul who thinks that government attempts to arrest people for actions that harm only themselves are inherently illegitimate. You have an Obama administration that has set records in deportations. You have Ron Paul saying to a crowd at a Republican debate that border walls are essentially un-American on this wide range of issues involving individual autonomy and liberty and protecting people from real oppressive concentrations of power, Paul is more progressive than Obama or nearly any other national political figure. Um, I don't wanna glide over that one point that makes progressives uh, not like Ron Paul, is that they love income redistribution and Ron Paul does not. And in fact, I think Ron, Ron Paul is sort of a, a living, uh, sort of rebuke to them uh, in a sense that it sort of proves that they only care about income redistribution and they don't actually care about peace, civil liberties, and saving people from oppressive concentrations of power. But again, that uh, the fault lies in the progressives, not in Ron Paul. Uh, the fourth divide that Ron Paul bridges uh, that I think contributes to his success is he is 
uh, both an incredibly intellectual politician with an incredibly emotional hold on his audience that I discovered as I met hundreds of them over the course of researching this book. I mean, he is, as, as I've heard various people say, the only politician you know, running for national office of whom you'll hear people say, I heard Ron Paul and I went out and read a bunch of books. You know, you're not gonna hear that <laughs> about Obama or Romney. And, uh, and Ron Paul, not only does he write books of serious intellectual heft, those books tend to have bibliographies that point you in the direction of where Ron Paul's ideas uh, came from. He will lead you to Bastiat, he will lead you to Mises, he will lead you to Rothbard, he will lead you to Chalmers Johnson. He, he, he is actually a genuine intellectual leader uh, in, in modern America, even though I don't think even he would claim that he is himself a great intellectual, but he is a great student of great thinkers and has been a very diligent and impassioned transmitter of their ideas across the generations. Yet at the same time, for being as intellectual as he is, and, and even in, in his, his demeanor as he presents his ideas, he's not, he's not a, a podium thumper. The, the guy is not selling emotion, though I think there's a great emotional uh, context to what he says about the, the richness of liberty. I, I was especially interested to note in more recent talks I've heard him say, and when Ron Paul talks, he is, uh, he is extemporizing. He, this might be obvious if you hear him talk. It becomes more obvious if you hear him talk a lot. Uh, he, he, he doesn't have notes. He doesn't have a speech he's reading. He has a set of ideas about liberty that he sort of wings and wends his way through. And more recently, he's been talking a lot in a very sophisticated way about the sheer richness of a human life lived according to its own desires and its own choices, uh, that, that there's something philosophically important, not about what specific thing you may choose to do with your life, but by the fact that you are allowed to actually choose to craft your identity and how you're going to move through the world. And uh, I, I see this moving uh, his audiences on a very uh, sophisticated level. And by being so intellectually consistent and so thoughtful and, and so bookish in his way, he has managed to imbue these tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands now of fans with a emotional attachment that is a little bit to him, though I, I do wanna stress that those who call it a cult of personality, it's, it's, it's to him because he is the embodiment to them in public life of the ideas that have moved him. Uh, Ron Paul is not a leader in the sense that he could tell his troops where to turn or tell his troops what to do. Ron Paul is only a leader in the sense that he has helped introduce people to a set of ideas that they have grown to hold great fealty to. And if Ron Paul told his, his people to reject those ideas, they are going to reject Ron Paul. They are not going to reject those ideas. And, uh, and, and that, that emotion is, is going to carry this movement long beyond the 2012 election cycle, long beyond whether he has dropped out or withdrawn or, 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 or whatever we wanna say about his most recent uh, actions. Uh, they are going to continue to work within politics. They're gonna to continue to work within media, both d distributed and non-distributed. It's, I think, a point worth noting that the single uh, most heard answer when I asked Ron Paul people the question, how did you get into all this, was a YouTube video. And they wouldn't necessarily even remember what YouTube video it was, because by that point they'd probably seen 200 of them and they'd probably made 100 of them. Uh, but uh, it, it was that, that dis distributed, non-controlled means of humans making 
art and making culture and distributed amongst themselves has been the key to why the revolution has been able to succeed. I mean, the ideas are the same, as David said. Ron Paul has been saying the same thing uh, for 30 years. And I think, as David said, part of why they're ringing truer now is the objective conditions of reality make it more obvious that Ron Paul was right about things like the Federal Reserve and blowback and, and the like. But another reason is that the, the means of communicating those ideas have become so much more decentralized and widespread. And uh, while this may be the last year for Ron Paul as a national political figure, I, the reason why I wrote this book is because I'm convinced it's true that 15, 20, 30 years down the line, if you look at the elections of 2008 and 2012, the most important thing about them any historian will recognize will be that Ron Paul ran for president and the Ron Paul revolution was launched. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. We have an excellent commenter today on the book and on Ron Paul's revolution. I published some evidence recently at the Cato Institute blog that my native state of Kentucky is the least libertarian state in the country. So imagine my surprise when Rand Paul emerged from an ophthalmology office in little town of Bowling Green to defeat first the Secretary of State and then the Attorney General and win a seat in the United States Senate. Both his Republican and Democratic opponents ran pretty negative campaigns against him, accusing him of all manner of extreme libertarian views. Some of the accusations were actually true. Um, oh, I, I never admitted to any of that. <laughs> and the voters wanted a change in Washington, and they elected him by a comfortable margin. He was perhaps the most authentic Tea Party winner of 2010, which is why he then wrote a book called The Tea Party Goes to Washington. Since he got to Washington, he has tangled with the TSA, proposed a budget that's actually balanced, drawn rave reviews for his efforts to rein in the Patriot Act, and been denounced as a libertarian extremist by a writer in National Review. So what else is new? National Review does that every now and then. We couldn't have found a commenter who knows more about Ron Paul or has more of a stake in the future of Ron Paul's revolution. Please welcome the junior senator from the Commonwealth of Kentucky, the home of the eight-time national champion University of Kentucky Wildcats, <laughs> Senator Rand Paul. I want to congratulate Brian Doherty on his uh, book, The Ron Paul Revolution. I think he's got it right that it's more than just Ron Paul. It's a revolution. It's, it's a movement. And it's part of the libertarian movement, but it, it is something bigger than one person. I think my dad would be the first to admit that the movement is not just him. He realizes that there's something bigger. And, you know, he's fond of saying in the crowds, you know, freedom is popular. It brings people together. No matter what walk of life you're from, what you do, what your personal background is, what your lifestyle brings people together if government stays out of people's affairs. Now, this is kind of a young crowd, I think, out there. Anybody ever go see The Grateful Dead? There we go. A couple of people. I figured Brian had probably seen The Grateful Dead. I never got into a concert, but I got to the parking lot one time. And they, they used to hold up the tickets and say, I've got three in Cincinnati for two in Detroit or whatever. I guess they were planning on going to the next concert. 
And why it reminds me of the Ron Paul revolution in, in, in probably many different ways, but because people, I would see people, I saw somebody in Orlando last week, he says, oh yeah, I met you in, in Iowa, in Ankeny at the Ron Paul headquarters. And Brian, I think, was there also, and the headquarters would be 250 young people from all walks of life, from all over the country, all working together in the headquarters. It always struck me that when you go to a Ron Paul rally, it wasn't everybody in suits and ties. It wasn't the Chamber of Commerce. You might see somebody with a tattoo. You might see somebody with a Grateful Dead t-shirt. Uh, but uh, it was different. It was, it was different in a better way, I think. People from all different walks of life were there. And I think he did make the message of freedom popular. Now, uh, David talked about how people came in. Did they come into the libertarian movement or Ron Paul movement by reading Ayn Rand? And I sort of did, but I kind of had probably nature and nurture. So I, I probably was born a libertarian, but also read the Ayn Rand novels and really enjoyed them in, in, in high school. As you've seen some people back in a way, they're afraid of Ayn Rand now. But because you like someone and you liked individual, it doesn't mean oh gosh, I've endorsed every word in every book, but people are now afraid. And one of the funniest uh, blog lines I saw recently was, you know, Paul Ryan's always said that he was a fan of Atlas Shrugged, and now there's a, a blog line that says Ryan Shrugged, because he's backing away from that. But the, when you go to the Ron Paul rallies, one of my, there are just so many cool things happen throughout two campaigns. Uh, anybody ever see the Amy Allen Ron Paul Revolution song? That's a fabulous song. If you haven't seen it, look it up. She's great. She actually came and performed for him live at the when they did the Minneapolis rally at the same time as the Republican convention. Uh, she came and performed for me in one of my campaign events when my dad came and campaigned for me in uh, January of 2010. Um, but just uh, bringing, a, I think, a certain sense of uh, coolness to it that you weren't seeing anywhere else. You didn't have many candidates get on the stage. You probably haven't had any before, and you may not have any since, who, who when asked about the war and asked about how to end it, said, we just marched in, we can just march out. Couldn't be any simpler than that, or any less fearful than to say something like that. You had a guy who would go to the debate in Miami that's a, a Latin American-sponsored debate and say, we need to end the trade embargo. Castro's been there for 35 years, and he's not going away, and he said that to booze. When he first stood up and talked about blowback, I believe in the South Carolina primary in 2008, he said that to booze, and he wasn't certain how people would respond. But interestingly, there was a lot of negative response, but there was a whole new positive response of all these new people. And I keep trying to convince the Republican Party, you may not like everything that he's presented, but at least appreciate your, your electorate's getting bigger, your, your party's getting bigger. You need to welcome the Ron Paul people because they're people who maybe have been unhappy with both parties or been libertarians or been constitution party or been independent party, but they're coming in and you need a bigger party. One thing you may also never hear again in a Republican debate is, uh, I think he said at one point that it doesn't say blessed are the war makers says, blessed are the peacemakers. And I mean, will you ever hear another presidential candidate say that? I don't know. But that was pretty impressive to me. There is a, a, a continual battle, though, and the battle goes on. And there have been some things that we continue to fight. When we fought the Patriot Act this year, we got more no votes than we ever got before. I don't think it was 28, 30 votes. But that's still a growing movement of people who are concerned about the Fourth Amendment. And I said over and over to people, both in my campaign as well as when I've gotten here, is that 
you have to believe in all of the Bill of Rights. You know, so many conservatives love the Second Amendment. There are Second Amendment rallies. There are Second Amendment groups. There's not enough Fourth Amendment rallies and enough Fourth Amendment groups. But you can't have the Second Amendment if you don't believe in the First Amendment. You can't have the Second Amendment if you don't believe in the Fourth Amendment. Um, so I think that there, there is a growing movement. I think there's a movement within the Republican caucus that I have lunch with every day that's becoming more libertarian. There are people that are no longer afraid of it. I say that the, the term conservative got kind of used up by people who weren't conservative. So we had a conservative president who doubled the debt with a Republican Congress. It's obviously worse now, but it was going in the wrong direction under a Republican administration. So the term conservative became became of less value, and the term libertarian, I think, became of more value. We're still having the fights. We had the fight on the Defense Authorization Act. We didn't win, but we, we got close to some victories. One amendment uh, Dianne Feinstein introduced was to say that citizens would not be able to be held indefinitely or sent from the United States to Guantanamo Bay. At one point in time, she actually was going to withdraw the amendment. Mike Lee and I sat there and said no. Once an amendment's introduced, they have to have unanimous consent to pull it back, and we said no. And that's pretty unusual. Usually if an author wants to pull an amendment, you just let them out of courtesy. We said no, we've got it out there and we've got to vote. And we still almost won, but they introduced a watered-down version of it, and so we lost 55-45. But 45 people at least believe you shouldn't send a U.S. citizen from here to Guantanamo Bay. Interestingly, about two hours later, we had another vote, and they were voice voting everything. About 9 o'clock, every Senate starts thinking they need to go get on back on oxygen or whatever, but it's bedtime. <laughs> and uh, so it's about 9 o'clock, and they're voice voting everything. And a vote comes up that I've been watching, and this amendment said that if you're found innocent in an Article Three court in the United States of being accused of terrorism, terrorism and found innocent, that you could still be sent indefinitely to Guantanamo Bay. Not that you just wouldn't get a jury trial. You could have a jury trial, be found innocent, and still be sent to Guantanamo Bay. And they were trying to convince me. Both uh, the Democrat leader was Levin, the Republican leader was McCain. They both told me they didn't really like it. But sort of it's like, just get along with everybody. Let it go through, and we'll pull it out in the conference committee. And that's, you know, and I was like, well, should I? And I looked back at my staff, and they were like pointing back to go. And I went back, and I said, we've got to have the vote. And so all you got to do is raise your hand. I asked for a voice vote. And on that voice vote, it's the first time I was really actually surprised. And so were they, because Carl Levin was with me. Actually, John McCain voted with me. 51 Democrats voted no on this, and nine, eight or nine Republicans. I think we got 59 votes, and we stopped something that is horrendous. And Carl Levin even said to me, but it's the law. And I said, if it's the law, it's awful that you could be found innocent in our country and kept in prison forever. That's the law. If that's the law, that's awful. And for goodness sake, we got to at least have a recorded vote. And we did, and we won. Out of the Ron Paul revolution, you have new people being elected all the time. Justin Amash is going to be a great congressman. He already is. And I think he has a lot of the principles of Ron Paul. We have a guy running in northern Kentucky who could be one of the top five up here if he wins. He's in a seven-way primary. There's three leading Republicans. It's a Republican seat. And uh, he's either close to or at the top. Interestingly, a young man who I don't think I've ever met, and I don't think Thomas thinks he's ever met either. The candidate is Thomas Massey, and he has a good chance of winning. A young man who's 21 years old from Texas just put a half a million dollars into a super PAC, and he's supporting Thomas Massey. But he was a liberty-loving young man who I think had been to the Ron Paul rallies and things. 
but uh, he just got involved in the race in a big way, and it's going to help him. That race will be a week from today, and if we win that, you'll get another libertarian up here. I think the attitudes of people are changing. I think within our caucus, I see some change. The Ron Paul revolution is having an effect, even on people who are already up here. People who would have always said they were conservative are now sometimes saying they're libertarian. In our caucus, we debate, and some are actually lamenting that some of us aren't so gung-ho to put boots on the ground everywhere. Some of us aren't so gung-ho to go to war without a declaration of war, or at the very least, a vote in Congress. We still don't have enough, but when I introduced the president's words, President Obama in 2007 said, no president should unilaterally go to war without the authority of Congress. Sounds pretty basic. It's basically what the Constitution says. I introduced his exact words to see how people would vote, and we got a vote. We got 10 votes for his words, 10 Republicans. <laughs> Not one Democrat voted that uh, saying that uh, Congress should have anything to do. Recently, there was a committee hearing, and Panetta was there. And they asked Panetta, they said, you know, what about going to a war with Syria or Iran or both of them? And he said, well, if we do, we'll get permission from the United Nations. And they said, and he said, well, uh, we will consult with NATO. And they said, and they said, well, we'll probably inform Congress what we're doing. We might. But there was no definite, there was no act that it was going to occur before the action occurred that Congress was very peripheral. That's our own fault. It's the biggest problem we have up here is not only are we peripheral as far as being almost of no value and not engaged at all in foreign policy, we're the same with regulatory policy or any policy. The unelected bureaucracy runs this place, and in foreign policy, the executive runs this place. And no one attempts to assert themselves. I think that's the biggest challenge we have. I think the Ron Paul revolution is helping us go the right direction. I think Brian's book will be a great value to popularize this. And I hope the Ron Paul revolution becomes a bestseller. Thank you, Senator Paul. Both of our speakers have been very concise, so we have some time for questions. So let's uh, open the floor up to questions. Please wait to be called on, and please wait for a microphone to come so we can all hear you, and please give us your name and any affiliation you have. Are there any questions? Over here. Uh, thanks. I'm John Nutley with the American Conservative. Uh, what about the left? Is the, are there younger people on the left that come into this? Uh, can you reach the left? Uh, we, we, everything you've talked about is great, but is there a future of bringing in, in a new party or a new movement? Uh, what about the left, etc.? Uh, I'll give a very individualist answer to that. I mean, yes, I know for a fact that the Ron Paul movement revolution has succeeded in winning over many people from the left. I met and talked to many of them. Uh, there is as yet no hardcore social science research on the Ron Paul uh, movement, so I can only say that I met a bunch of them, and you know, a bunch of them say that they have friends, so it is possible, and, and the anti-war uh, wedge, you know, was always what pulled them in. I mean, it, by by being the guy who was consistently and radically uh, 
anti-war. He was able to win them over from the income redistribution issues, which I mentioned earlier, which are definitely still an enormous barrier for many of them. When the Occupy Wall Street movement was uh, going hot and heavy, uh, uh, Congressman Paul was the only candidate who actually was willing to grant that, yeah, they had some grievances uh, that were real. Uh, the problems of crony capitalism are very real, and he, he liked the idea of engaging with them, and lots of his fans tried to engage with them, and uh, they weren't usually very well received. In one case, in, I think it was in Philadelphia, uh, I shouldn't even tell this story, but uh, <laughs> in, uh, a, a, a rather gross act of violation of personal space occurred on the Ron Paul people's tent involving human excrement being left behind. So that's, that's sort of symbolic of, of the worst edge of what your Occupy Wall Street leftists think of the Ron Paul people in their midst. But the Ron Paul people were ready, willing, and able to try to engage them where they lived on trying to explain the difference between actual free markets and, and what we've seen with the bailouts and TARP and, and tried to explain the, you know, the, the connection between peace and small government. And uh, I know it's won over many individuals. I don't see much signs it's winning over the left as an organized entity. And obviously to the extent that the left as an organized entity feels connected to the Democratic Party, uh, it's going to be even trickier, but one-on-one, uh, -on -one, drip by drip, uh, Ron Paul's message can succeed in winning over leftists. Well, I'd just like to add to that a little bit about what David said originally about libertarians get together and they say, oh, I came to it because I read Ayn Rand. When you talk to the Ron Paul people, they'll say, where, how did you get there? Some of it might be Ayn Rand, but some of it might be I came from the left or I came from the right. And you'll hear people ask that question, do you come from the left or from the right? I think more than the vast majority are probably from the right, because we're obviously in a Republican primary, but there are new people coming in who are from the left also. And I think some of them are converted on some of the other issues, but they came in primarily on the war issue. It also gets back to whether or not Romney can hold those people and get them to vote it wouldn't be enough for Ron Paul to really endorse them. These are real individualists. They will vote for Romney if they heard that Romney is wanting to audit the Fed or if they heard that Romney is reluctant or has some uh, uh, restraint with regard to war or if he's interested in continuing the drawdown and the end to the Afghan war. Uh, which a lot of conservatives are now in favor of. But I think the left-leaning people that came to the Ron Paul movement uh, will or could vote for the Republican nominee if they were hearing some of those things. I want to add one quick sentence to that. I, I actually, I have noticed, and I'm going to be writing an article, I'll probably be in a future issue of Reason about this, that the way Ron Paul himself has delivered his message, particularly this go-round, has been in a way that uh, I don't think deliberately, but in a very real way, should be able to appeal to a, pro a progressive leftist for various reasons I will explain in a later piece of writing. And uh, uh, and I, I think, and I know he is mindful of it, in fact. I've, I've heard him actually wondering aloud, like, oh, it's really interesting. There's a whole bunch of lefty and progressives who are interested in what I have to say right now. And it's, uh, and I think in the same way it interests him, it should, if you're interested in the libertarian movement at large, you, you should be thinking about that question. Okay, take a microphone right here. My name is Eric Kanjemi. I'm here on my own accord. Um, my question has to do with the article that was written this morning uh, discussing Barry Goldwater and his efforts in the 60s. And that it took about 20 years for his, his efforts, Barry Goldwater's efforts in the 60s, 
uh, to turn into the Reagan revolution in the 80s. My question specifically would be, um, Ron Paul's effect nowadays, uh, do you think that the Republicans can learn anything quickly? And if so, how? Um, not super quickly, like I don't think this go round. I think the resistance, if, if you followed what was going on at the GOP state conventions in Oklahoma and Arizona over the weekend, the resistance is very real. In some cases, it's very physical. You know, you have Romney people hitting uh, Ron Paul people. Um, I don't think this is the year it's going to happen, but um, this is rooted in the notion that I tend to think that Ron Paul is actually correct about a lot of the things he says about fiscal crises and debt crises and foreign policy crises. So from that framework, I have to think that some political party has to come around on this or the alternative is a little bit uh, too terrible to contemplate. Uh, and I do think that the forces of objective history and, and sort of changing attitudes are more on the libertarian wing of the Republican Party side than, say, the Rick Santorum wing. I mean, the sort of values issues that animate a Rick Santorum are becoming less popular. The, the sort of libertarian issues that animate a Paul are becoming more popular. Uh, so I, I, I do believe, uh, for all the tumult we've seen in local Republican parties, for all the new candidates, uh, some of which Senator Paul just mentioned, that uh, it does seem clear to me the Republican Party uh, will be a more Ron Paulite party uh, down the line, and uh, I think it needs to happen pretty fast, but it's, it's, it's only beginning this year. You know, my comment would be that it needs to be much more quicker than from Goldwater to Reagan or Goldwater to now because I think we face a much more serious and imminent crisis. Um, when the banking crisis occurred in 2008, I always tell people I, I think of that crisis as two plus two didn't equal a four, two plus two equaled a million. A panic is when math doesn't really add up and when things get out of control. And I've been talking to people lately who are concerned that we could get 2008 on steroids coming out of Europe, basically, but a contagion spreading throughout the world. Now, you may say, oh, that's too dire. I don't know if it is or isn't, and I don't know the future, but I worry about that. But I think it's why it's important that if we believe in limited government, that we have people in place, should a crisis occur, should the destruction of the currency happen in a more rapid fashion rather than a slow fashion, that we have people preaching that. And the example I use is one that people say, oh, you're just trying to scare people, but I'm not really, but it has happened that we have destroyed currencies and out of that you get something really bad. In the 1920s, we destroyed the, Germany destroyed their currency and they elected Hitler. People say, oh, that's an over-the-top comparison. Well, you worry about what comes out of the destruction of a currency. Do people choose a strong leader that'll give them, give me your liberty, I'll give you security? Or are there enough people who still love liberty that say there is another way, you know, that we could come out of this? And that's involving freedom and free markets in the individual. So I think it's important to be in place, even if you're a minority, in case something bad does happen and we have to change direction in the country that we don't go in the wrong direction. Yes, here and then um, go ahead and take a, a mic up to the back. Uh, Ken Meyer, Cord World Docs. Uh, getting back to Mr. Paul's anti-war stance, uh, does he plan to commemorate the upcoming uh, summit, NATO summit in Chicago in any way? I don't know. Uh, not that I know of, and it strikes me as not the sort of thing he tends to do, so I'm going to say probably not. Yeah, I don't know. Not his usual style, I would think. Yes, in the back row. 
Hi, uh, Jason Farrell, Center for Competitive Politics. Uh, question for Brian Doherty. Do you have any opinion, uh, looking at 2012, the next four years, uh, over you know which presidential victory, let's say it's Romney or let's say it's Obama, which victory, if any, would be better for this sort of small incubating liberty or Ron Paul movement, or would there be you know any difference at all? Uh, I had to think about this this morning, talking to a reporter, so I have a, a freshish answer. Yesterday, I, I didn't have an answer. Uh, for reasons that I cannot articulate, I am pretty convinced Obama will win re-election, and I cannot defend that, but I, I just said it on the record, so you can get back to me about it. But I do believe that the, the, since the Republican Party is the vehicle through which this action is happening now, that it's probably better if Romney wins and is as bad as the libertarians uh, expect him to be, uh, which which allows for a, a convincing uh, primary challenger to really make very real to the party that there are two wings of the party fighting for supremacy, you know, like in 1960 it was the Rockefeller wing versus the Goldwater wing, that is the Romney wing versus the Paul wing, not to place any particular weight on any particular Paul, but uh, <laughs> that would be a, that, it strikes me that that in, in, you know, my grand historical vision of puppet mastering that maybe a Romney winning and showing the Republican Party that they can't deal with any more people like Romney might be great. You want to comment? Sounds like a good question to have no comment on for me. <laughs> All right, well, I have a different question for you, Senator. Why are you wearing on your lapel what looks like a red scent? Uh, there was a Louisville Tea Party during my race that uh, started handing these out, and you can get one. It's only a penny. You can get one for a dollar. And um, it's just a penny that's painted with red fingernail polish, and their motto was, not one red cent more. The government's taking all my money, and I'm not giving them one red cent more. Could be worse. Our Swedish libertarian friends used to have a picture of a kroner, a, a, a kroner or whatever cut in half, signifying their desire to be allowed to keep half the money they earn. <laughs> yes, right there. And then go ahead and give the mic to the gentleman just behind him. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for your time. Um, Mr. Doherty, your, your anecdote earlier, the first time... The microphone met, up to your mouth, please. First time you met Mr. Paul reminded me of the first time I met uh, the senator, or, I'm sorry, Congressman Paul, was when I spilled oatmeal on him in the Rayburn House when I was interning there. <laughs> so I, we have that connection. But uh, my question is regard to your use of the term revolution. I've been trying to reconcile exactly how you, how you mean to use that word. Mm -hmm. And I've, I find it difficult to use that word in terms of returning to kind of traditional American or constitutional values. I was just kind of curious how you're applying that to what's going on now in the... Sure. I mean, obviously, the, the main reason I use it, it, just reportorially, I am reporting on a phenomenon that calls itself that. Uh, you know, the Ron Ball grassroots began using that term and that logo that appears on my book's cover in early First 2007. So it's... It's uh, the main answer is I call it that because the phenomenon I'm reporting on calls itself that. Uh, but and uh, so I haven't thought hard about whether that's an apt term. I'm going to think out loud a little bit uh, now that you've asked me. Um, I do think it's an apt term, especially in sort of the linguistic, the root linguistic meaning of revolution is revolving. It's uh, you know an, an attempt. And I don't think I talked about the Constitution much, but I should because I, I think it is key. I know it's key to Paul's appeal to a lot of people is the notion that he is trying to turn us back to 
the root notions of constitutional liberty and a, a constitutionally limited government that uh, they believe America started with. And you, you can argue a lot, and I'll listen to some arguments about how much fealty your love, uh, hardcore libertarian, should feel to the U.S. Constitution, and I'm sympathetic to arguments against it. But I do think in the current context uh, that it would be a great improvement to return to that conception of the Constitution and to roll back to it, and that involves, for the more colloquial meaning of revolution, which is a severe and radical change in government, it, it would be a severe and radical change as well. So I do think the term is, is apt on those levels. You know, I would say if you got to know and you were around the campaign at all, it really was different than any other sort of campaign because it really, revolution may or may not be the best word, but I'll give you a couple of examples. They said, let's, the way we can really win is let's have a blimp. And so everybody told them that was a stupid idea. So what did they do? They got a blimp and they did it anyway. So people said, let's fly over Indianapolis 500 with a Ron Paul banner or a radiology resident in New York put on the top of his building, Google Ron Paul. When you take off from Kennedy or something, you fly right over his building, you look down, you see Google Ron Paul in 10-foot letters. Or they would say, the campaign's ads suck, and we're going to do our own on YouTube, and they would just make their own ads. And a lot of creative stuff came out of the YouTubes and the things they did, but it really was sort of a movement, and they didn't like, because they were libertarian, they were individuals, they didn't ever like being told what to do. They did what they wanted to do, and it made it a much more interesting campaign. I don't know if they were right or wrong in some of their decisions, but they did it anyway because they were going to do what they wanted to do, but it definitely made it more interesting than the typical campaign. The Tea Party has been mentioned a couple of times in a couple of different contexts. And the question I have is it certainly seemed like that was a movement that had its origins in the 2008 campaign, or at least parallels the 2008 campaign, and was very supportive, obviously, of the senator's run in Kentucky in 2010. But since then, it seems to have gone off, gone off in a different direction, um, not necessarily uh, you know, opposite the movement that the, revolu the Ron Paul's revolution has followed, but definitely somewhat different. And you know, it was very disturbing to, to me, anyway, an observer, to see exit polls during the Republican primary and see you know Romney getting basically a vast majority of the Tea Party support, which just seemed completely completely off uh, off topic. And um, so I wonder, from your work on the book and just being with the campaign, if you could give us some kind of, of a different perspective as to what you think has happened there, and if it's possible to bring the folks that are sympathetic to the Tea Party back into the fold, so to speak. Um. I'll quickly address the question of the connection between, you know, the Ron Paul, Ron Paul 08 and the Tea Party movement. Um, as a matter of intellectual history, I think it is very fair to say in the sense that the notion of a transpartisan, seriously shrinking government movement that attached itself to the term and the iconography of the Tea Party, that all started with Ron Paul in December 16th, 2007. Uh, the problem with intellectual history, though, is that most people don't know any intellectual history. So having said that, I will also say that most of the people who began coalescing in 2009 around that term didn't necessarily know that and weren't necessarily acting out of the same impulses that the original Ron Paul rooted Tea Party movement came from. So it's both fair to argue that, yes, Ron Paul invented the modern Tea Party, and also fair to argue Ron Paul didn't really have a lot to do with the modern Tea Party. And yeah, just like you said, I was distressed as heck to see Tea Party identifying people uh, being for your Romneys. It struck me, and I, I've written this, that 
logically, by political logic, the Tea Party should have been in Ron Paul's pocket, and the other problem is that lots of people are not logical about their politics. Um, Senator Paul has identified himself with the Tea Party uh, in a way that perhaps he might want to address if, if he agrees that something has gone wrong. Uh, um, I, I felt on the trail in 2011, 2012 that I wasn't feeling there was a lot of continued fealty to that notion or that identification, certainly not around the Ron Paul world. I wasn't, I, I, I was feeling that the Tea Party as labeled has, has been less of a story in 2012 than I expected it to be. He might have a different... Well, I think, I think Brian's right that I think the first Tea Party was December 16, 2007, because I was there, and it was in Boston, and we called it a Tea Party. And then there were other Tea Parties that came around in 2008. Were the, did they really start in 2008 or 2009 to get big? Uh, Boy, 2009, actually. Yeah, because in 2009, I was beginning to think about running, and I was at my son's baseball game, and I went down. I was going to give a speech. I thought there'd be 20 people there in Bowling Green. On my square, there were 700 people. It's the biggest rally I'd ever seen. So that was 2009. But I think it had its origin and roots in in the uh, the 2007, 2008 campaign for my father. But I would say, and I always say that there are two things that I think got the Tea Party started, two issues. Uh, people unhappy about Obamacare, and then people also unhappy about the bank bailouts. But going around that movement also was a hearkening back to rules, the rules being the Constitution limit government. And so when people say, oh, the Tea Party's dead and it's not doing anything, I think it's an enormous or an amazing victory that we have gone from no one questioning the constitutionality of laws for 60 or 70 years for the most part, particularly in the public, but even the Supreme Court, to taking Obamacare all the way to the Supreme Court. When they first started, Nancy Pelosi was incredulous that there was any case. It then went to district court, was not summarily dismissed as the liberals predicted, and you actually had conservative justices saying that inactivity is not commerce, and if we can regulate inactivity, we can regulate anything. There would be no limit to what government could do. And this has gone all the way up. On a parallel course, you've had liberal justices saying that by your thinking about buying something in commerce and making the decision not to buy it, that your thought process has engaged in commerce. And that might be a little bit of a stretch. But you've got those competing influences. But the, even the fact that we're having that discussion is amazing, and I think we're going to win in June. But I think the Tea Party was around the bank bailouts, so it had some of the same anger that people have had in the, the Wall Street movement, but it also was about Obamacare and also about the Constitution, some about the Tenth Amendment. There was a Tenth Amendment movement mixed in there. And when it got to presidential politics, they didn't have a firm opinion on foreign policy. And so they broke the same way Republicans have been breaking, is that the libertarian, less interventionist, more restrained foreign policy is at best 20 to 30 percent of the Republican primary, but maybe as low as 15 to 20 percent of the Republican primary. So when the Tea Party breaks up and decides and they think other people are acceptable because of foreign policy, a lot of the Tea Party are more just traditionally conservative. They broke away from Ron Paul on that issue the same way many Republicans did. I want to add something to that really quickly, because I did find to my surprise on the trail in Iowa, New Hampshire, how many Republicans who weren't Ron Paul people actually really quite liked Ron Paul when you talk to them about Ron Paul, but he just wasn't their candidate. And overwhelmingly why he wasn't was this sort of miasma that surrounded their thoughts about Ron Paul, that he was 
too weird and too out there and just a little too much. So I think one of the most important things that's going to come out of Ron Paul coming into this convention with even if not winning with you know 600 delegates rather than 400, he's established himself as not this weird outlier, but the runner-up, the guy who fought it out to the end, the guy who didn't win, but the guy who was like the number two choice for the Republican Party. And, and just that sort of marking, I think, is going to do a great deal to change the minds of a lot of Republican voters, because it's never that they hated him, it's just, or, or thought he was wrong, it's just that they thought... Uh, he's he, we. It's just not done to be for Ron Paul, and it will help show, you know, when there's more precinct captains who are Ron Paul people, when they're meeting more. Oh, you're you're the chair of my county committee. You're a Ron Paul guy. Cool. It will make Ron Paul acceptable in a way that he hasn't been, not because of his ideas, but because of these this weird cultural miasma of strangeness that is dispersing. All right, let's take a question here, and then Christian, take a mic up to Nick Gillespie for the next question. Hello, uh, my name is Kami, but I'm with the Pakistani Spectator, which means I'm very much interested in Afghan issue because it's in, they are neighbor countries. Uh, I met Congressman Ron Paul by chance at RNC, Republican National Committee, and I honestly felt he is too honest to be just a congressman. How can he imagine to become a president of the United States of America? <laughs> uh, please tell him that he should be thankful to Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> And my question is that how can he become, this is a serious question, how can he become president of the United States of America when he wants our, in, uh, when he doesn't want involvement in countries like Iraq, country like Afghanistan, doesn't he understand there are so many jobs that are created uh, because of our involvement in those countries? Mm -hmm. uh, honestly, it's not re realistic. Uh, his views are very, very honest, but they are very simple. Thanks. Those, I mean, I'm going to channel him a little bit. I mean, uh, unquestionably, every time government moves money around for whatever purpose, it's creating a job by paying someone to do something. Uh, Ron Paul learned a lot of his economics from uh, the great economic populizer Henry Hazlitt, who, who explained that uh, just because you can see the job the government's creating with the money it's moving around does not mean that if the government stops moving the money around, there'll be no jobs. It's merely that the new jobs will reflect what people actually want, not uh, you know the making of munitions or the building of trillion-dollar buildings in Iraq. You know, if you if the government's not moving the money around, then the jobs that are created reflect what people actually want to do with their wealth, not the the weird imperial power games that Washington chooses uh, to, to to do with their wealth. And of course, there's going to be adjustments, but it's going to be an adjustment that's going to be a world that's richer in the end because more people are actually getting what they want, not what Washington decides they should have. All right, and I would dovetail on that also that um, in the marketplace, 300 million people get to vote on where they want to spend the money. In government, a select few do. We're going to have government, but the whole Jeffersonian idea is to minimize what they do because what they do takes money away from the productive sector. So most of us who believe in li very limited government acknowledge we should only have the bare minimum of what we need because then I'm deciding where your money is spent, whereas if I leave it in your pocket, you all vote where it's spent. And, so that, and it's also the more productive sector because government's not very productive. You know, For example, we sent $600 million in checks to dead people 
in the last five years. We don't do a very good job. Do you have to have some people to protect your country through the military and through the Army? Yes. But uh, what we do should always sort of be minimized because then we're taking it and voting on how to use it, and we don't use it as effectively as the marketplace uses it. So um, whether or not that's naive or not, the other argument would be is even if you believe that government should be creating jobs by doing things, we're spending more than a trillion dollars we don't have each year, so it's not even really real money or real assets or savings that we're sending overseas. And we do have a lot of things at home. Even if you acknowledge government's going to do certain things, we have two bridges in my state that are over 50 years old and need to be replaced. And, you know, one of his famous lines was, we simply bomb bridges over there and then rebuild them while ours are falling down here. Puts it kind of in a concise sentence where we have problems. But ultimately, the argument is the private sector is more productive than the public sector, so we should always minimize how large the public sector gets. Hi, I'm Nick Gillespie with Reason. Uh, Brian, I know you're a big comics nerd. Uh, you've also <laughs> talked about how Ron Paul is producing the next generation of libertarians. Could you talk a little bit about what produced him? And you know, was he bitten by a radioactive spider <laughs> from an old volume of Von Mises or something? Yeah. And Senator Paul, uh, could you talk a little bit about what it was like to grow up with Rand Paul as your, uh, Ron Paul as your father? Was he a libertarian parent? And if so, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah. Um, I, I, I've, I, I think you and I, Nick, have talked about this. I, I've been a little scoffing at, at stories that try to root his beliefs in, you know, the hardworking, hard scrabble Pennsylvania Dutch background that he grew up in because a whole lot of people grew up in backgrounds like that and most of them became, you know, New Dealers essentially. I, 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 if you ask uh, Congressman Paul this question, and, and I believe him when he says it because uh, it feels internally true to me, it, it really just came the way lots of libertarian nerds come about from reading the right or the wrong books, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, you know, books like uh, Dr. Zhivago uh, sort of uh, helped hit home for him the, the evils of communism, and books uh, by uh, Mises and Hayek uh, sort of explained economics, and books by Senholz and Rothbard helped him understand the dangers of inflation, and and uh, and that's what he, he it, it is really an intellectual uh, thing for him. Uh, it's obviously emotional as well, but I, I I don't think you can explain it by anything other than he he picked up the right literature, and I think it's a great the you know the the great wheel of life turning as he is helping make sure that millions of other kids are reading the right literature as well. Um, I think it it really does go back to the nature nurture argument on everything. I think he was born with individualist blood in his body. They were also a family that didn't have they they had some money, but they didn't have a lot. And it was in the depression where people counted pennies and nickels, and I mean, really watched everything they spent. And even though they had a little bit of land, maybe an acre of land, they grew all their vegetables in the backyard. They worked hard, and they knew what 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 hard work was like. And I think he was born with an independent mind. He didn't like people telling him what to do. He didn't like the idea of big government. But a lot of people were born that way. But then I think Brian's right. Then he he discovered Ayn Rand. He discovered Pasternak. He discovered von Mises. And so uh, as he began reading those things, but I think they're not what make you an individual. I think they give you the intellectual arguments to support your individualism. And so which came first, the books, or were you born that way? I don't know. But I think it's always a combination, at least my opinion, of, of both in a lot of us. So was he a libertarian father? Uh, yeah, no, no curfew. You could do it. No, actually, 
and and this gets to to other sort of issues that people have. Can you be very very traditional and very very conservative in your personal life, but then be very libertarian in the what you think government should be involved in? I think you can. And sometimes I think libertarians are upset that someone may be too traditionally conservative, not understand libertarian something else, but they still may not want laws against certain things. But they at the same time. Very conservative. So I would say we lived in a very, very traditional conservative family, and unfortunately, I did have curfew, and I did get in trouble a few times. Okay, there in the back. Let's take the last question. R.J. Smith, Competitive Enterprise Institute. I think one of the most interesting things that's come out of the Ron Paul Revolution has been with some of the new people who've been uh, elected and come through the Tea Party and so on, has been the rediscovery of property rights and the importance of the Fifth Amendment and particularly the takings compensation. And it just happens that the, perhaps the, the first and the most courageous person on this in the U.S. Senate in the 40 years since the environmental movement got started and has basically been using environmental laws to take property rights without compensation has been Rand Paul and, uh, and Mike Lee, and particularly with the uh, legislation they've introduced to uh, stop the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers from declaring uh, dry lands as wetlands and then taking this with no compensation and preventing the use of the Lacey Act to prevent Gibson Guitar Company from uh, bringing in woods from foreign countries that say it's okay. And I wonder if you would uh, comment on that. It's top secret, and I'm not allowed to tell you. Uh, no, we're, uh, I'm actually collecting a lot of these stories together in a book, and I was hoping that uh, David and Cato will invite me back when we have those to present. But uh, we have introduced legislation on the Lacey Act. That's the thing they went after Gibson Guitar on, and it did uh, appall me that I discovered that we were actually forced to uh, be regulated under foreign laws. Basically, all fishing regulations for the entire world, you can be convicted of Honduran fishing regulations, Brazilian fishing regulations, and spend time in a U.S. prison over these things. So we have gone after things like that on the Lacey Act. People have been in prison for putting dirt on uh, their own land, basically raising the elevation of their own land because people say they're a great polluter because they're putting clean dirt on dry land, basically. So there are a lot of these crimes and over-criminalization through regulation that uh, we're very interested in, and we're going to keep going after them. I just want to add to that, you know, RJ and I have known each other for years and we, we both used to work together in the old Cato townhouse in the early 90s. And RJ was telling me the same thing he, he just said here last night uh, at an event. And, and I wasn't as impressed maybe as I should have been because I was just thinking, yeah, 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 the EPA and the bad things they do and property rights. Like, yeah, well, you know, I, we, we've been talking about that since 1991. I've heard it all before. And then I thought, well, it, it, it was just us in, in a small Cato townhouse. It was not a U.S. Senator and that it is indeed a very big and grand thing that there was a U.S. Senator both talking about it and acting on it and uh, thanks for bringing that point up. All right, the book is Ron Paul's Revolution. Thank you, Brian Doherty. Thank you, Senator Rand Paul. Thank you all for being here. Uh, there are books for sale at every bookstore in America but also out here in the hallway with the author here to sign them so please join us for wine and cheese and a book buying. Congratulations on the book.